Today on Government Matters, reconsidering the top job for information across government agencies. Two federal experts share insights on reducing the number of chief information officers. $83 billion for training and funding Afghan military forces, the biggest lessons learned for defense and future operations. And an earthquake in Haiti leaves thousands of residents seeking aid. Two former FEMA leaders tell how to prepare, plan, and respond. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Representatives Jerry Conley and Daryl Issa want to consolidate the Chief Information Officer, or CIO, role across the federal workplace. The idea to reduce each agency to one CIO has been discussed for almost a decade. Karen Evans is at KE&T Partners. She's former Chief Information Officer for the Department of Energy and former Vice Chair of the Federal Chief Information Officers Council. Alan Belutis is former Senior Director and Distinguished Fellow at Cisco Systems. He was the first CIO at the Commerce Department. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Karen, is this a good idea or a bad, bad idea to consolidate the CIA role? And why is this coming up again? Well, I think it comes up periodically, especially with the things that are happening in cybersecurity right now. But I do think it's a good idea because the departmental CEIO is actually the one that's held accountable by Congress and also to the secretary. And Alan, what are, what are your thoughts? Do you agree? Good idea? I, I think it's a good idea, but I, I don't think it's the pivotal idea. I don't think it's the uh, critical path issue that really needs to be addressed. What is the critical path issue? Well, the, the CIO position was created in government in the Information Technology Management Reform Act of 1996, commonly referred to as the Planner Cohen Act. It's 25 years ago. That legislation set up CIOs, it defined their roles, responsibilities, and authorities, it outlined uh, the, the preferred re uh, reporting relationship to the secretary and deputy secretary. Um, as you look across government today, there's probably only two or three departments or agencies that you could say have fully implemented that legis legislation properly. And really, in spite of an array of circulars, bulletins, letters from the Office of Management and Budget, follow-up legislation from the Congress, we really haven't established uh, a CIO uh, position in the 24 uh, CFO Act agencies that has the proper roles and responsibilities. Until we do that, uh, I, I think this is just a, a nice to have type of thing, but it, if um, that it, uh, legislation were properly implemented across government, I think that would put us on the, uh, uh, on the critical path to solve all these other issues. Karen, do you agree with that? Is it a matter of roles and responsibilities? What, what are you seeing as the current problems of having multiple CIOs at one agency? So I've had the opportunity to serve in multiple roles. 
And um, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Alan as the way the reporting structure is, because it really has a lot to do with the skill set of the individual and then how the secretary or the head of the agency really wants to manage the function and how risk is managed within a department or an agency. So we have a lot of legislation. There's a lot of roles defined, but what happens is one person is being held accountable and then that's not perpetuating through the rest of the department and agency. And they need to have that backing from the senior leadership. So in one way, I'm agreeing with that, but I don't think it, it needs to have more or a direct responsibility because we have some undersecretary roles and it really then allows that CXO um, role to really happen and have that integration across the department. You mentioned the proper skill sets, uh, Karen. What is the proper skill set for this one singular CIO? And is that practical to have all those skills wrapped into one person? Well, it's not the one person. The one person has to have the ability to hire people, know what their own strengths are, and then build that team so that they can provide that leadership for the program across the components and then up to senior leadership. Alan, there are some agencies like uh, USDA that have consolidated and have only one CIO. What um, are, do we have any lessons learned? Are they better or worse off? What are your thoughts on that? I, I think there are two or three. I think the, the others that have done uh, the same thing are the Department of Interior and the Department of uh, Veterans Affairs. And, and I don't think anybody who's looked at this issue has seen any relationship or any d direct results of consolidating that position. I mean, the, these are all kind of playing with names. I mean, the agencies still have a senior IT person, um, whether that's uh, a CTO or a chief digital officer, we keep slicing the baloney thinner and thinner in terms of dividing up the responsibilities in the, uh, in the IT realm. And, and again, I think one can find a moderate correlation uh, between uh, having a single CIO and, and uh, the enhanced management uh, and oversight that's necessary to, to guide and direct IT. But again, it, it's not a direct correlation. It's not a causative factor. And I don't think one can uh, clearly demonstrate that VA, Interior, or USDA are any better or worse off because of that action. Alan and uh, Karen, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Coming next, training and equipping the Afghan military and security forces. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to improve the management of future training operations. You're watching 7 News. Afghanistan fell to the Taliban in days. That's after the U.S. spent $83 billion on training and equipping the military and police forces. Jason Dempsey is adjunct senior fellow for the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for New American Security. He's a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Jason, welcome to the program. 
Great to be here. Tell us first, Jason, how the training of Afghan forces was managed. How were people recruited? How long did it take? Well, I think the, what people need to realize, just right off the bat, this was a bureaucratic endeavor. Right? No matter what confidence you may or may not have had uh, in the uniform figures who you know came across your TV screens year after year and talked about progress, uh, it was ultimately uh, the machinations of a bureaucracy at war. Uh, and the other part of this, I think, needs to be very clear from the start. Every single time a senior U.S. military leader told you that training the Afghans uh, was our number one priority and the way we were going to get out of Afghanistan and just the most important thing we could do, it was flat out a lie. And I say that very clearly and very explicitly because the institution never resourced it, never took it seriously, uh, and never looked at, well, are we building something that's not just going to be a house of cards the moment we pull out? But Jason, how do you say it was never resourced? I mean, $83 billion is a lot of yeah. money. Oh, it's a lot of money. And the question is, you know, how do we spend it? I would encourage everyone here who's watching Government Matters, you know, if you haven't already, go to the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. He's been detailing year after year after year the massive fraud, waste, and abuse uh, that has taken place in our reconstruction efforts and in our efforts to stand up the military. You know, I think when we talk about all this money, really, it's about did we spend it smartly, right? Just because we have weapons, just because we have money doesn't mean it's effective. And that's a hard lesson, I think, uh, for folks to learn, particularly when we've all grown to believe that the military can be the solution to all of our foreign policy problems. Okay, then uh, how, Jason, would you, w was the military measuring success? How did they we know? Measuring it, right, we were measuring it on inputs, uh, not outcomes. And ultimately what we did was we confused training the military for tactical operations, frontline stuff, uh, and just handing them weapons. We assumed that the infrastructure needed to actually keep those weapons in operation and the willpower, the political willpower to keep them fighting. Well, the military assumed that somebody else was taking care of that problem. And that was always the structural flaw. And what you saw was the result of that that came out with the rapid collapse of the Afghan military, right? And there's two dimensions to that. The main one, of course, is lack of political will. What they saw behind them uh, was a government that was always perceived as highly predatory, often illegitimate. And when push came to shove and they're on their own, the question is, well, do you fight for that? The second element where the US military is more responsible for this failure is uh, we built an Afghan force that looked like us without thinking, what do you need to fight like the American army fights? You need functioning bureaucracies. You need a highly educated population. You need people able to manage and employ highly technical, logistically dependent systems like air power. Uh, none of that existed in Afghanistan, but we propped it up just assuming that, well, someday maybe it'll happen. And for the American military, it was the easy button. Year after year, you could rotate through make some superficial changes, do some training on tactical stuff, uh, and just assume that the rest of the problem would magically be taken care of by somebody else. Well, Jason, I want to go back to your first point, because some critics have said that the Afghan military just didn't have the will to fight. Is that something that you can train or inspire in, in people? Well, for one, there's a little bit of nuance that needs to be taken here, because I, I do take offense at the idea that the Afghans can't fight, right? There is a narrative taking place that, well, you know, they just collapsed. 
60,000 folks on the Afghan side have died in the fight against extremism in Afghanistan over the last 10 years. They've given more than most Americans can even dream of, and their families have been at risk at the same time. Uh, they are true heroes. Uh, and what's confounding about this is what we did was we propped them up and put them out without addressing the core the core corruption at the heart of this, which was the Afghan government was simply not seen as legitimate, not to the degree that people would clearly side with it over the Taliban. And we propped them up and sent them out in a structure that made sense for the American military, but didn't make any sense for them. And so once we were not there to prop up this house of cards, they simply didn't have the ability to fight. And unfortunately, it's you, you, you just can't blame the Afghan soldier out on the front line uh, for looking around and saying, you know what, it's it's time to cut my losses. You can and should blame Kabul elites and the American military that put together this system on the assumption that it would exist in perpetuity uh, without our support. Jason, you have said that now is the time that we have to ask the hard questions. What are those questions? The hard questions is, it are one, who are we listening to now? Uh, and what are we, what are we, what are we actually learning and what incentives do we have to reform? We just executed Vietnam 2.0. And we told, but we told ourselves we learned from Vietnam. And so now the question is, well, wait a minute, we didn't learn from Vietnam. And so what is it about our structures? What is it about our bureaucracies uh, that make it hard to learn? And here's the challenge for your listeners and everybody working in the DC area, particularly those working in the national security space. Everybody who's leading the US military right now Everybody who's going to be leading the U.S. military in five years, in 10 years, will have had many of their formative experiences in Afghanistan. And you might think that would be cause for reflection, but you have to recognize how the bureaucracy evaluated itself. All those people who are in leadership positions and will be in leadership positions were told overwhelmingly and consistently that they were doing a great job and contributing to a successful mission in Afghanistan. That's what bureaucracies do. Jason, there's so, so much more to say on this, but we are out of time. <laughs> Sorry about that. Thank you no so worries. much for being on the program. Good luck. Thanks for covering it. Bye. Coming next, an earthquake and a tropical storm in Haiti leave residents struggling to survive. Straight ahead on Government Matters, two former FEMA leaders share how to respond to and prepare for natural disasters. You're watching 7 News. A 7.2 magnitude earthquake and a tropical storm in Haiti leave thousands of residents seeking aid. This disaster comes in the middle of hurricane season for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. Joe Nimick is a retired rear, rear admiral with the Coast Guard and former deputy administrator at FEMA. Dave Grant was previously acting deputy administrator for FEMA. They're both partners at Potomac Ridge Consulting. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Admiral, what type of support does FEMA provide overseas to those hit by natural disasters like the recent earthquake in Haiti? So the way the federal government is set up, FEMA uh, really has an advisory role. Uh, the U.S. Uh, AID is the primary provider of support overseas. So much like in 2010, FEMA will send some advisors down. They will help coordinate the elements of the federal response. But FEMA itself is a domestic agency 
and the resources that FEMA has, the Disaster Relief Fund, uh, are restricted to U.S. entities. So the funds and the resources that go to Haiti are coming through USAID. And, and Dave, uh, you know, Joe mentioned coordination. How is that coordination done? There's so many different groups that descend on a country that are providing support. You know, there's UN, there's USAID, there's nonprofits. How does that work? Who, who's in charge? Well, really, as Joe said, for something like Haiti, that would be USAID. Um, so all the coordination would come through that. And FEMA step up with our advisory role, as Joe indicated. Well, Joe, back to you. The um, type of planning that goes on at FEMA to prepare for natural disasters, walk us through some of that. So virtually every type of natural disaster has a, a plan, and, and often the plans include the triggers that would indicate uh, to activate FEMA. Uh, the process normally works is all disasters start out locally. And just as an example, what just happened in North Carolina in the Western mountains, local firefighters and police uh, actually dealt with the immediate reaction. Then the state will look at say, okay, what roads were damaged? How would you, how will we deal with those roads damage federal or, or buildings or housing that isn't there. And when that exceeds the state's capabilities, then FEMA will come in and FEMA will come in with resources. FEMA also will take the plans in and set up when there is a known event coming. So right now, Long Island is in the bullseye of, of the first potential hurricane landfall. We had Fred, which was a, a tropical storm, but uh, Hermie looks like it will become a hurricane when it makes landfall on the south shore of Long Island. FEMA through region two is already establishing through the plans that they have with states and local entities the communications, the knowledge of what resources are available on Long Island and what they may need to be moving in terms of generators or other commodities in order to support the citizens that are uh, that are going to be impacted by that hurricane. Well, Dave, we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic. How has uh, FEMA had to change the way it operates during a disaster? Well, Mimi, that's a good question. They've had to embrace social distancing for one both internal with FEMA and its federal partners, but also external with the survivors. So for example, the NRCC, which is the National Response Community Center, would, would normally have 250 federal employees all crowded around working together. Under the COVID pandemic, in fact, they had to spread out. The NRCC is active, but they're gonna be in different rooms around the building. So it, it takes away from the face-to-face -face conversation. With survivors, they would walk into a disaster uh, response center and they now are worried whether the first responder is ill. So we, we have had to test our first responders every day or, or provide a proof of vaccination or negative test. And, and that's just to make sure that our survivors are comfortable. We do also offer, also offer testing to the survivors as they come in. And Dave, there would need to be prioritization now, given that as a result of climate change, there's just a lot more natural disasters, fires, hurricanes, rising sea levels. 
Tell me about how that prioritization process works. Well, I'm not sure that the FEMA would prioritize that way. The way a disaster works is the state would have to request assistance from the federal government. Once the president declares a disaster, FEMA goes all in. Now, if another disaster comes up, as it did in the fall of 17, with Harvey, Ermi, and Maria, that certainly puts a strain on the agency to respond to one and move resources as appropriate for the next disasters that come up. So FEMA is not a large agency, and it needs to be prepared to work with the state across a, a multitude of different disasters. Joe, I know that, uh, you know, you are an admiral with the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard is operating now in Haiti. Can you give me an idea of what they're doing? So they're primarily moving resources to the isolated areas that is a result of the damaged infrastructure. It's hard for first responders to get there and then bringing out the most critically injured uh, for medical assistance in other locations. Uh, it's primarily their H-60 helicopters that are supporting um, the international effort that is going on in Haiti. All right. Well, uh, Joe, Dave, thanks so much for being on the program and talking to us about this. Thank you very much. Happy. You have a good day. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you think of the show. We're on Twitter at GovMattersTV. You can get the latest updates and a behind-the-scenes look at the program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on the issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.